Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. We are in Paul's first, which I've reminded you is really his second letter to the Corinthians. He wrote one letter to them, they wrote one right back at him, and then he wrote them again. And then they wrote back to him, and then he writes them again. And we have first and second, which are really second and fourth. Corinthians, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we make our way through this book. And we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 16, 1 Corinthians 7, excuse me, verses 1 through 16 this morning. And before we do, let's take a moment to confess, or to, we could confess sin all day. Let's take a moment to pray that God would bless the preaching of his word and that he would prepare us to receive it this morning and bless it to us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do look to you and ask that you would remember us and that you would remember your covenant and that you would remember your faithfulness to your covenant and your promises to us. And you would remember your church this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would correct us and instruct us that where we need to be rebuked, you would rebuke us where we need encouragement, you would encourage us. Where we need to be freed from particular sin, you would do that. Where we need to be prodded along in the right way in which you have drawn us, that you would do that this morning. Father, we ask that you would accomplish all your purposes. You have said that as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth and makes it bring forth in buds, so providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so shall your word be which does not proceed out of your mouth in vain, but that it accomplishes all of your purposes. Lord, take this portion of scripture, make us to know that it has come forth from your mouth, make us to receive it in faith and repentance and with joy and to keep it that we might not sin against you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes these words and he's picking up on what he has said in verses 12 through 20 of chapter 6. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive or literally defraud one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, and literally there it's probably to the widower and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not depart from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest... I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy, literally sanctified. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife? whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, in his book, Future Shock, Alvin Toffler talks about the society in which we live as a throwaway society with suburbia and suburban sprawl and transportation and now even technology thrown in. We are a culture obsessed with throwing things away. We throw away old appliances. We throw away cars. We even throw away houses. And now, Toffler says, we have become the new nomads. America once held on to our possessions as long as we could. People cared about what they have. They took care of what they had. They valued what they had. But in our society, we have become rapidly a throwaway society. And even now, Toffler argues, we have the disposable person where two or more generations ago, divorce was something that was less common. Now we have disposable marriages, disposable people. We do what we want when we want. We get rid of what we want when we want. And those things ought not be so. Now, the whole issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is a difficult issue. Um, Paul, I want to say at the outset in these verses that we're looking at this morning, is not writing a Christian counseling book on marriage. Paul didn't decide now suddenly in 1 Corinthians 7 to say, you know what the church really needs? They really need a book on how to have healthy marriages. Paul is not writing a book on marriage. What Paul is doing is he is interacting with things that the Corinthians had said to him. Now, the Corinthian society was a little bit different than ours. It was here you'll see a throwaway society. I think you're going to see that. I need you to pay very close attention to what I say today, because if you don't, you're not going to understand this text, and you're going to miss a lot of very important things. It's a very difficult portion of Scripture. There are many commentators that come to this portion of Scripture. They see Paul answering the Corinthians. They're not even sure what the Corinthians said to him exactly. And some of them are going to say, in this section, what this is about is Paul saying it would be better if everybody remained celibate. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying celibacy, staying single and serving the Lord in celibacy is what we really ought to strive for. But you know what? If you have burning hearts of passion, you just better go ahead and get married. That's not what he's saying. He's not writing a Christian counseling book on marriage, and he's not saying singleness is better than marriage. Now, I will say preemptively, I know that because Paul will talk about marriage in Ephesians 5 and say it's a picture of Christ in the church. Paul, if he was saying that, would be contradicting what God said in Genesis when he said it's not good for a man to be alone. And Adam looked out over all the animals, and he saw that all the animals had comparable helpmates, male and female. And so he saw there was no comparable helpmate for him, so God made a woman for him. And, and the greatest act that God did after creation was marriage. And he blessed it. And our Lord Jesus, in his first miracle in Cana, blessed marriage. He put his stamp of approval on it. And it becomes a picture for us of the marriage that we have with Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, Paul is dealing with some very serious issues in Corinth. Notice there in verse 1 that 
He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It is likely Paul wrote them one letter that we don't have, and then the Corinthians wrote back and tried to refute Paul point by point. It's likely that what the Corinthians did was they challenged Paul. I take great comfort in the fact, and I I told some friends this week, pastor, take great heart. The Apostle Paul had the Corinthian church refute him point by point. That's not something unique to our society where people like to challenge ministers and theologians. That happened to the great apostle. And so Paul took up their arguments and he answered them strategically. And it seems, it seems, I think the best answer is that what the Corinthians had said to Paul now, remember they had said earlier, all things are lawful. We dealt with that two weeks ago. Now it seems that some of them were saying, well, Paul, if there's so much sexual immorality and if you're single and you're the great apostle, it's good not to have sexual relations. And so everything that Paul is going to write here in the next 16, and really the entire chapter, 16 verses here and then the rest of the chapter, is really a response to the Corinthians basically saying to Paul, well, Paul, basically you're telling us we ought not have sexual relations. And Paul is now going to go in and he's going to deal with this. And in these verses, there's going to be two sections. One, he's going to deal with prescriptions for sexual relations within marriage. And then he's going to deal with prescriptions for broken marriages, prescriptions concerning sexual relations within marriage, and then prescriptions for broken marriages. We'll notice there that Paul takes up there in verse 1 that quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And he says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband. Now, I don't think Paul's saying because you have sexually immoral hearts, you need to get married. A lot of people have said that's what Paul's saying. There was a prostitution ring in Corinth. There was a spiritual group of what they call them eschatological prostitutes, spiritual prostitutes who said the body doesn't matter. The spirit's what matters. We live in the new age. These were professing believers practicing sexual immorality within the church. So Mark Driscoll says instead of living in communal prayer, they were living in communal sex. That's Corinth. Instead of living in communal prayer, they were living in communal sex. And Paul is writing in that context, and he's saying, because because there is sexual immorality going on among you, each of you are to have sexual relations with your own wives. Now, this is very complicated again. You might say, wait a minute, they're married and they're having sexual relations. Yes. They were neglecting their marriage relationships. Men and women were going outside of the marriage bonds, and they were basically saying, I don't have to fulfill this to my husband. The body doesn't matter. We belong to a new order of things, a higher order. It doesn't matter what we do to our bodies. And so they were were failing in their responsibilities to their spouses, and they were pleasing themselves in sexual immorality. So Paul says, because, and I don't think temptation should be there, because of the sexual immorality going on, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband, the husband should should give to his wife her conjugal, conjugal rights, And likewise, the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, what Paul is going to say is that God created uh, sexual intimacy for marriage. It's good. It's beautiful. It's one of the best things that we have in this world. We don't want our children growing up thinking it's something dirty and perverse. It is perverse outside of the marriage bed. 
It is beautiful and good and right inside. I had a friend who said to me right before I got married, what was once forbidden is now commanded. What was once forbidden is now commanded. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying it is commanded that a husband and a wife fulfill the sexual obligations to one another. It is a duty. It is not just a pleasure. It is actually a duty for husbands and wives to come together. Now, it almost sounds strange, doesn't it, that we would have to say this. It should sound good to us. My friend, my friend says, you know, after you preach this sermon, everybody should be tithing. You're telling them, have a lot of sex with your spouse. That's a good thing. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying it is good and right, and it is a duty, and you are responsible. You are responsible to fulfill the obligations to one another. And there's intimated in this, this belonging to one another. You see this marital union with one another that the husband... His body isn't his own, and his wife's body is not her own. Now, let me say this. There could be great abuses to this. There could be great abuses to this. This is not saying a man can physically abuse his wife. That is wicked and evil. Nor is it saying a man can pursue improper sexual things with his wife against her will. That is not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is there's a responsibility a caring, a self-sacrificial, self-denying obligation to fulfill marital union because at the end of the day, it's not for you to withhold that from your spouse. Your body, just like Paul said, notice back in chapter 6, Paul said, your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and spirit, which are God's. Your body belongs to Jesus. It is blood-bought. If you are married, your body also belongs to your spouse. So you can see how Paul's not saying singleness is better. He's not saying singleness is the goal, but if you can't be single and you just got to get married because you're burning with passion, you got to get married. He's saying marriage is good and there's a union and there are responsibilities and there's mutual love. Now, I don't know why it is. I'm going to be as honest as I can. And if you need to email me, I understand. I don't know why it is before we're married, we want to have sex. And after we're married, we don't. I don't get that. I don't get why before you're married, it's like the forbidden fruit. It is. And then God gives you the most wonderful gift in a loving Christian spouse, and you don't want to fulfill your obligations. Women, you do not get to hold over your, men, your, your husband's heads when they do something wrong. This as a punishment. Paul is saying that. I don't think men have that problem. But you don't get to do that. Paul is saying, notice verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not defraud one another. It's actually the same word that Paul used about what the Corinthians were doing by suing one another. They were defrauding. It's the same word he used in chapter 6. He's saying when you do not fulfill your marital responsibilities, you are stealing from your, your spouse. You are taking from them something that is their right, their divinely given right, as a gift from God. And so Paul exhorts here in the first place, married couples in the congregation in Corinth and us here, that we ought not deprive one another. Now notice what he does there in verse 5, because what he's going to tell us is that there's not just the danger of depriving one another. That's part of it, is that you're hurting your spouse by withholding what the ESV says, conjugal rights. you got to like that nice, clean, safe language. But 
There are also other dangers. There are other dangers. There are spiritual dangers. Notice what Paul says. He says in verse 5, and he does this by way of concession. Paul basically says, listen, the only time you ought to really be withholding and, and, and abstaining from sexual relations in marriage is that you take a short time for fasting and prayer. Maybe there's a particular series, a need in your life where you have to do that. You have to spend some time alone. You have to fast from whatever it is that physically gratifies the body, whether it be food or sex. But only, Paul says, for a short period of time. And then he says that you come back together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your self-control, lack of self-control. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There is a relationship between sex and spiritual warfare. In your marriage, there's a relationship between sex and spiritual warfare. My friend, who I've mentioned a few times, Stephen Birch, one of my best friends in the world, says that Paul is teaching here the urgency of frequency as spiritual warfare Pauline style. He is teaching the urgency of frequency in marriage as spiritual warfare Pauline style. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that husbands and wives coming together in intimacy and love and self-sacrificial enjoyment of what God has given them in the marriage bed are making war against Satan and their own flesh. Think about that. Now, how can you not love a God who enables you to make war with the devil by making love to your wife? How can you not love that? The wisdom, the wisdom of Almighty God that we actually battle against the corruptions of the flesh. Note that Paul is not saying marriage solves sexually immoral lust in your heart. That's a very important point. There are some people who would read this passage and say, see, the answer to sexual immorality totally is get married. No, it's not. Paul's saying that's still there in the heart. And so there has to be a reciprocal, mutual, ongoing frequency in the marriage relationship. Now, parents, I know there's children here. I know that. This is in the Bible. If you want to talk to them more about this at home, I get that. This is super important that we get this in our marriages. It is super important that we get this in our marriages. Um, We are in a spiritual battle every day of our life. And oftentimes, where does Satan tempt the most? In the marriage. You know, Ephesians 6, where um, the apostle talks about spiritual warfare the most, and he says that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places and that we war against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That's the book of Ephesians. And right in the middle, the first application is husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands, honor them, submit to them, love one another because that's where Satan loves to bring discord first and foremost. And so Paul's telling us The urgency of frequency is spiritual warfare against the devil. Well, notice that Paul, as he goes on in these very complicated and nuanced arguments in verses 6 through 9, he does actually talk about singleness. He does talk about what we call celibacy. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that pastors and priests and clergy have to be celibate. In fact, in Timothy, Paul will say, if anybody forbids to marry, that's doctrines of demons. So if anybody teaches you that anyone is forbidden from marriage, that's demonic. That's what Paul will say, the same Paul. Here he will say, by concession, notice verse 6, he will say, now by concession, not by commandment, I say this, I wish everyone 
was as I myself am. Now, Paul was single. Some people say Paul was the head of the Sanhedrin. Some people believe that Paul had a uh, death of a wife or that when he was converted, she was ripped away from him. The marriage was torn apart. We don't know. If he was one of the head of the Sanhedrin, it does seem he may have had a wife. Paul is clearly single here. Normally, don't take marriage advice from your single friends. There's a reason they're single. Normally, when the apostle gives you marriage advice, it is the Holy Spirit giving you marital advice because the Holy Spirit superintended his marital advice and inscripturated it for us. And so Paul is going to say, listen, I'm not going to command you to be single, but I wish that all were as I myself am. And he'll later go on to say, because he could do more for the Lord. He'll actually say um, further on down in the chapter, we'll come to this later, that the husband has to care for the things of the wife and the wife has to care for the things of the husband and that they have a divided interest, but he who's single can care singularly for the things of the Lord. The godliest man I ever met was uh, Dr. John Skilton. I've told you about him. He was the Greek professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia for 43 years and he lived till he was 98 years old. He died in the 90s, the late 90s. And Dr. Skilton was single his whole life. He had what we affectionately call the gift of singleness. I remember as a boy, my sister and I being perplexed why Dr. Skilton wouldn't want to get married. I obviously didn't have the gift. Even as a child, my sister and I would talk about marriage and we want to get married. And why doesn't Dr. Skilton want to get married? God gave him a very special gift. Notice what Paul says. Paul says um, that God gives in verse 7, I wish that all my were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, God gives to some men and women uh, the gift of celibacy where they don't have the sinful sexual desires that the majority of us have, or the good sexual desires. Not all sexual desire is sinful. Sexual desire is not a result of the fall. But God gives to some, and I think they're, they're rare, he gives to some the gift of singleness. Matt Chandler says, most of us want to just give that gift back. We don't want that gift. I burn with passion. There's been a mistake. We don't want the gift of singleness, and there's a reason, because we've not been given that gift. But notice what Paul says. Paul says that God gives the gift of singleness to one, and then he says, and he gives a gift to another. Notice verse 7, he says, to one, one gift, and to another, another gift. Now, here's what I think Paul's saying. I think Paul's saying celibacy, singleness for the Lord, is a gift from God, but so is marriage. He's saying, if you are married, God has given you that great gift. Anna and I have a painting my sister painted hanging over our wall that says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And there is probably not a month that goes by in my life that I think, how have I obtained that kind of favor from God that he would give me the wife he gave me? He who obtains a wife obtains a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. What Paul's saying is, listen, God gives different gifts. To one, he gives the gift of celibacy. To the other, he gives a gift of a wife or a husband. And you know what we're to see in that? We're to see that God is bountiful, that God is giving us unique gifts for his purposes to show forth his glory. If you have the gift of marriage, that's to show forth the picture of Christ in the church. That's, that's a gift to show forth in your marriage. Husbands, the self-sacrificing love of Jesus who would lay down his life for his bride, the church. And wives, the 
humble submission as the church submits to Christ, that beautiful mutual picture. Um, Notice that Paul picks up one more category in this marriage section, the prescriptions here in verse 8. He says to the widower and to the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn. Now, again, Paul's not saying God commands singleness to widowers and widows. What he's saying is if it's possible that a man or a woman who's had a husband or a wife can live in celibacy as a widower or a widow for the Lord, that's a good thing. Notice Paul says it's good. Throughout here, you have good and you have better. Good, better, and as the title of the sermon is, he'll say, to the rest, to those that are married to unbelievers. Notice that Paul will say about widows that it's good if they can remain single, but if they cannot exercise self-control, and there he means if they are living in promiscuous relationships, having had a deceased spouse, They're to marry because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. It's better to get married if one cannot abstain from sexual immorality. So you see some of the multifaceted wisdom of God in this first section where Paul is really setting out a theology and a prescription for not depriving one another and even remaining in the state in which you are, if possible, for the namesake of Christ. But notice He shifts gears now in verses 10 through 16, and Paul is going to give prescriptions about broken marriages. Um, Many of the Corinthians were functionally saying, if the body doesn't matter and my spirit is ultimate, and it's good not to have sexual immorality with a woman, then I could just get divorced because that doesn't matter. That relationship doesn't matter. And so Paul is now picking up that dimension of the argument, and notice what he says. He says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. And there, what Paul is doing is he's basically referring to what Jesus said about divorce in the Gospel of Matthew. He's reflecting on what they knew that Jesus had said to them, that a man should not divorce his wife in a very patriarchal, male-driven society. The opposite would be true in ours, too, and in the Corinthians, that Jesus said if a man divorced his wife, that he would cause her to commit adultery. But Jesus does give that one exception except for sexual immorality. If a spouse was unfaithful, if whether believing or unbelieving, if a spouse was unfaithful, Jesus permitted divorce. It was lawful. It was never to be the thing we rushed to, but it was lawful. And so Paul says to the rest, I, not, or, I, not I, but the Lord say, the wife should not depart from her husband But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. What he's saying there is that as as a standard, as the norm, divorce is wrong, and if divorce occurs for any reason other than a legitimate, the spouse committed adultery, that it was wrong. And that Paul says if a man or a woman got divorced for an illegitimate reason, they should remain single or they should be reconciled. That's a pretty straightforward teaching of Scripture. Um, nowadays, you will hear people divorcing people for every reason. He didn't fulfill me. He didn't fulfill my emotions. He wasn't there for me for this, for that, for anything else. That is not permissible. Now, I will say this. If you're asking the question about somebody that was abused, I do think that a wife who has been abused needs to get as far away from an abusive husband, needs to separate, needs to be in safety and protection. Nevertheless, Jesus said sexual immorality was grounds for divorce, and that was it. 
Paul will develop this in verse 12, and he will actually say, notice what he'll say in verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, Paul's not saying, God's not saying this. He's saying Jesus didn't make mention this one in his earthly ministry, but I'm mentioning it to you now. The other grounds for divorce is if you are married to a person, and here an unbeliever, and they will not stay with you. Abandonment. They depart. They're unwilling to stay. I think John Murray, the um, great theologian, wrote a book on divorce and um, called Divorce, uh, rightly shows that those are the only two grounds for divorce biblically, adultery and or abandonment. I think Paul is very clear about that in this passage. He says, to the rest, I not the Lord say, if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. You see, even... Uh, being unequally yoked, if there's a believer and an unbeliever, no matter how hard that may be, even that case is not grounds for divorce. Just because you may have a spouse that's an unbeliever doesn't mean that you can break that covenant with them. And so Paul says, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And then he says in verse 14 something very interesting. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Let me tell you what this is not saying. Paul is not saying that if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, your spouse is saved automatically. He's not saying that. What I think he's saying is that God's covenant and his dealings with his people, with believers, so works like an umbrella that even an unbelieving husband living with a believing wife will be the recipient of covenant mercies, common covenant blessings, where, you know what, we've seen this a thousand times in our life, haven't we? A woman's converted and her unbelieving husband that hates the gospel still drives her to church, still comes to some fellowships, happens repeatedly. Um, may even be converted himself, oftentimes have been converted, and vice versa. That what Paul is saying is that there is a covenantal sanctification in which God so works in the marriage relationship, and then even further, notice what he says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they're holy, that even if there's only one believing uh, adult in the relationship, that even the children are covenantally set apart and recipients of covenant mercy and care and God's common covenantal blessings. That's a big deal. What Paul is saying is that God is so committed to his people, God is so committed to his people, that he would even work in their marriage relationships, difficult though they oftentimes are and may be, and that he would bring blessing upon blessing to his people, to to believers, that he would so work that you don't even know the results. Notice what Paul says at the end in verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Essentially, you don't know, but God is committed to his people. God is committed to the marriage relationship. God is committed to keeping families together. God is a God of covenant. God works through families. God loves, God created the family. God is a triune God who lives in fellowship with himself all the time. And that is a picture of both marriage and the family. He lives in unbroken mutual love and fellowship with himself all the time. The father and the son delighting in themselves. The spirit delighting in the father and the son rejoicing in one another. That's why we have families and relationships. And you know what? Even though sin is so marred, our marriages and our lives, 
And let me say this emphatically. If you're sitting in here, and I know some of you have been divorced, remarried, maybe several times. We saw a beautiful reconciliation today. You know what? There is hope in the gospel. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There is restoration in him. He makes peace with God and you through the blood of his cross. Certainly he can make peace in broken marital relationships. He restores those who have been the recipients of abandonment and sexual immorality and even gives them renewed marriages with believers. God is so full of goodness in Jesus Christ. Don't hear this as a condemning sermon. Hear this as a sermon that reflects the goodness and the graciousness of God in Jesus Christ. Notice when Paul says that a believing wife or husband, if their, their spouse leaves them, notice what he says in verse 15 at the very end. I love this. This may be the most important verse for you to notice in this whole text. He says, if one of the parties won't, will, will not stay, will abandon the spouse, and think about the tensions in a marriage where one party is unwilling to commit themselves to the other. Think about the, the heartbreak, the hurt that so many people have experienced, so many believers have experienced. Notice what Paul says. He says, in such a case, a brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Think about that. What God wants for his people is peace. God wants you to have peace in your marriage now. That's why he commands the urgency of frequency. He wants peace for you if you are in a state of singleness, rare though that is. He wants peace for you if you've been in a bad marriage where the other person will not stay with you, where there's been difficulties and trials. And you know why? Because God is a God of peace. And I'm going to close with this. We all, we all have broken our marital relationship to God. Every one of you and I have broken marital, covenantal relationship to God. We have been unfaithful. We have, we have run after other gods. We have turned God into our own image. We have made idols for ourselves. We have loved self and self-pleasure. Jesus said to the Pharisees and the scribes, adulterers and adulteresses. He meant spiritually. Spiritually, we have been spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. That's the point of the book of Hosea. And you know what? God is such a God full of covenant faithfulness and love. He's the best husband. He sent his son from heaven to make peace through the blood of his cross. He reconciled us to himself. He renewed his covenantal vows with us. Every week when we come to the table in about two minutes, you are renewing your covenantal vows with God. If you're a believer. Now, let me say this. If you're not a believer, I don't care if you've been in this church since we started. If you're not a believer, you are in a broken covenant with God. You have been the violating party. You are under his wrath and curse by nature. I don't care how much you know, how much you think you know, how much you think you can answer things. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you do not have peace with God, I exhort you to flee to him. And you know what? He says, as many as come to me and come back to me, I will never cast out. Think about what a husband Jesus Christ is. Think about what a husband Jesus Christ is. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And you know what? You can come back to him a thousand times over and he will receive you and he will love you. 
He is the greater Hosea. Hosea bought Gomer with some silver. Jesus bought you with his blood. Your body is not your own. You belong to him. If you're married, your body belongs to your spouse. Let us be a people that take seriously these things. Um, The world will not. This may sound fundamentalist. It may sound narrow. It may sound restrictive. It is the only way to have true freedom in your marriage. It's the only way to have true freedom with God. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We know there is much here. We know that we all have failed in many ways, Lord. We have failed to love our spouses as we ought to love them tenderly, affectionately. We have failed to give them what is their right as a gift from you. And we have many times, Lord, desired the wrong things and desired those that are not our spouses. We pray that you would grant forgiveness and healing. We pray if any are struggling here this morning with any sense of condemnation from failed marriages, that you, almighty God, would work through the grace of the gospel, that they would know that through the shedding of the blood of your son, there's forgiveness and cleansing, that there's peace, that you are a God of peace, that you have called us to peace. Oh, Lord, may we know peace with you and peace with one another. We pray that our fellowship and communion would be a communion of peace. And Lord, I pray fervently that you would not let any marriages in this church fall apart to sexual immorality for our children that you would even now provide godly spouses for them father that their parents would take seriously this call and this word that is from you father please take these things take my feeble efforts to preach them and make them effectual to us in christ we pray these things in jesus name amen